This is Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. If there's one place on earth where geopolitics not only makes for good dinner conversation, but is also an everyday concern for every citizen, it's the Middle East. Today, we'll dive into the captivating realm of Middle East geopolitics, where history is being reshaped by intricate negotiations. Israel and Saudi Arabia, former foes, now pursue historic peace, yet that shadows shadows loom as nuclear reactors emerge on Saudi soil. Amidst Lebanon's fragility, Hezbollah's audacious dance with Israel adds even more tension, and as Iran navigates behind the scenes, orchestrating both regional turmoil and negotiations with President Biden for a pivotal nuclear deal, the region hangs in a delicate balance. To shed light on these complex dynamics and the broader forces at play, we obviously couldn't rely on ourselves. So we are honored to have Dr. Rafael Ben-Levy with us today, a distinguished authority in international relations and political science. Dr. Ben-Levy serves as the director of the Churchill Program for Strategy, Statecraft, and Security at the Algaman Institute and is a research fellow at the Mizgav Institute for National Security and Zionist Strategy. Drawing from an extensive background in IDF intelligence and affiliations with esteemed institutions such as Georgetown University, he brings profound insights to the intricate tapestry of Middle Eastern geopolitics. Notably, his contributions extend to his upcoming book entitled Cultures of Counterproliferation, the Making of U.S. and Israel Policy on the Iranian Nuclear Program. With, scholar, with a scholarly journey culminating in a PhD from Bar-Ilan University, an MA from Reichman University, and a Bachelor's of Science from the Technion, Dr. Ben-Levy's expertise serves as a guiding beacon in our pursuit of understanding these critical dynamics, so we are super thrilled to be joined by him today. Thank you so much. How are you? Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. So, where do we start? Um, what, what, what's changed in geopolitics, I'd say, in the last... 50 to 100 years. Oh, okay. That's a pretty broad uh, context. That's a good (laughs) one. Well, the past 5,000 years. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's changed. Um, I would focus mainly on, uh, let's say, compare our era to uh, the Cold War and the end of the Cold War, right? So during, you know, post-World War II, we were in the Cold War, and we called that a bipolar system. Why? Because we had two major powers, two great powers that were competing with each other over influence uh, essentially on every er- area in the world, right? And they were of more or less comparable uh, pow- uh, um, extent of power, whether militarily or economically and uh, uh, as far as geographic resources uh, and others, right? And then with the fall of the Soviet Union, we entered what people have called the unipolar moment, meaning that there's only one great power in the world and, and no other power, no other state power comes even close to the, that level of power, and that's the United States, right? Mm-hmm. And this was very clear throughout the 1990s, let's say that that was, this, that was the case, and it may be even still clear during the 2000s, uh, but in the last 10 years or so, it's starting to be clear that we are moving away from a structure of unipolarity toward a structure, again, of bipolarity, 
meaning that there is at least one other great power in the world who is comparable or in the same category as the United States. And it wants and seeks to challenge U.S. dominance in geographically, militarily, in international institutions, regionally. And that power is obviously the People's Republic of China. Mm. And I mean, what what was going on with China in the 90s and 2000s? Where were they and what, ha- what changed that yeah. made them all of a sudden relevant? Right. OK, so uh, in, in order to understand that, we got to talk briefly about where China was during the Cold War, let's say. So so like in between World War One, World War Two, there was a essentially a civil war within China between who would take over the country, what kind of country it would be after the fall of the uh, kingdom of the uh, Kesarud. And uh, this was between, on the one hand, the communists, right, in the 1920s, 1930s, and uh, the nationalists, you might call them the Kuomintang, right? And in 1948, as it turns out, um, what essentially happened is that the Kuomintang, the nationalist faction, escaped, and essentially they were, they were overrun by the communists, and they escaped and they went to the island of Taiwan, Right? And they essentially took along with themselves, they claimed the mantle as being the real China. Like, will the real China please stand up? So two people are going to stand up. China, Taiwan is going to stand up. And, and the People's Republic of China, which was later founded uh, after the, the nationalists escaped, uh, founded by Mao, Mao Zedong. Right? And, uh, and since then, China, mainland China, has been... Communist China, it's the mm-hmm. People's Republic of China, run by the CCP, the Communist uh, uh, Party, Chinese Communist Party. Okay. They also claim that they're the real China, right? And so this is this is the source of the, this big issue between China and Taiwan, mm-hmm. right? Because they both claim the mantle of the same identity, right? And and so obviously China wound up is, is, is more recognized as the real China just because of the scale. There's just a lot more of them. And they sit on the mainland, which is historical China. But their, the very identity of, of Beijing, of, uh, of, of the real China, is challenged by the fact that there exists this country called Taiwan. And they claim a mantle of the legitimacy of the you know, 3,000-year-old political tradition of China. They well, say that Taiwan says that the communist China is not really China and it's fake it's, China? It's the illeg- illegitimate China. Why, why don't they call themselves China? Well, uh, they, 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 they're the Republic of China. They do. That, that's what the Chinese you know, Republic saying, of ta- Taiwan. No, is the, ah, yeah? Taiwan is, is really the Republic of China. And what we call China is the People's Republic of China. Ah, Taiwan is officially called the Republic of China. Yeah, well, that's what they want to be called. I mean, that's what no they are officially called. Well, they don't want to call it because they don't of want to upset. The, 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 the PRC is bullying yeah. because the PRC is, no, you don't call them China. Okay, right, you, we call them Taipei. Right, they don't even want to call them. So Taiwan, they're actually trying it? to call themselves China. Yeah, actually, it's, it's worth noting that uh, for the first fifties, sixties, the ta- Taiwan sat at the Chinese seat of the UN Security Council. Right, there's five permanent members of the UN Security Council. So one of them is China. Right, and so even though even after they escaped for Taiwan for t- at least two decades, they were the officially recognized China because they were called the Free China. This is how in the Cold War talk. They were called Free China uh-huh. as opposed to Red China, mm. right? And it was only in the 1970s under Kissinger, uh, sorry, Kissinger Henry. Nixon, yeah, yeah um, where the US, U.S. made a shift where they they said, you know, we have the, we're fighting against. Uh, the Russian, the Soviets, mm-hmm. right? And we and their natural allies, at least ideologically, are the are the the, the communists, the Chinese communists. 
and uh, what we need to do is separate them, right? And how are we going to separate them? By, by bringing China into our orbit, mm. right? And so for strong geopolitical reasons, in order to strengthen their hand against the Soviets, they said, we're going to do a switch. Even though we don't like the Maoist red China people, we, they're not as powerful. They're not as big of a threat as Soviet Russia is. So we're going to do a switch and we're going to uh, establish diplomatic relations with uh, the People's Republic of China and accept them as the real China. So how did that's America... that's how we got the light rail. <laughs> no, we didn't even get there yet. I'm sorry, I didn't even get there <laughs> no, yet. No, no, yeah. that's not the... Okay. Uh, so that was the context. <laughs> okay, but yeah. how, how how did America let it happen under their nose Yeah. To for they China... They made it happen, apparently. They made it happen, yeah. But for China to become so powerful, so powerful right. yeah, how, how yeah, did so it Yeah, so they slip? really did, they really did in some ways help in, tr in create the, the monster, your quote-unquote, that, uh, that's become uh, the PRC. That and that's uh, because okay, so <laughs> I can't go into too much, but you have to understand when Mao came to power and they tried to establish real communism, right? People, the communism have never been challenged, right? Except for in Russia, in China, and a lot of other yeah. places, they established real communism and and they ruined the entire country, right? And millions of people in the fifties, right? And the, the the all these euphemisms like the Great Leap Forward. Uh, right, they were going to jump forward, but what they did was devastate their agriculture and 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 their society, and and so that they wind up paying a price for that over Tens the fifties. Yeah, yeah, dying right, starvation. Right. And There's then, the cultural, and then in the sixties they had the cultural revolution because yeah. people weren't so happy about what happened in the fifties, and so anyone. <laughs> Anyone who started, who who uh, dared to, you Express, know, call into question yeah. what Mao's policies were, they needed to be, uh, you know, uh, they needed to purify the par party of anyone who thought like that, and that that became the Cultural Revolution. Where then they went and and then actively killed another few million people uh, who had even, you know, uh, called into question whether that was the, his policy. But by the end of the seventies. Uh, in the early 80s, then they really had enough and Mao died by then. And so everyone, the, in, the people in the party understood that their changes need to happen. All right. So uh, Dei Jinping was the, the new leader who emerged. And they essentially decided to open up the economy. I Meaning he said, we need to move away from a, a really, um, a, you know, no uh, private property and everything being communally shared and, uh, and all that. We need to move away from that and allow some sort of level of private industry. And, Just keep uh, the yeah. good part, the authoritative right violent government right but so, no 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 socialist uh, right so they okay, still cool. <laughs> they still pay lip service to marxism and yeah. and marx is still his 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 portrait is still hanging really really big at the you know the the conventions and all that and in many ways they're still marxist but i think in more accurate they're more leninists right because there's theoretical marxism and then just leninism was is the which is which is the political aspect of how to take over control and run an authoritarian regime mm. right and so that they've definitely maintained Right. But in the 80s, they opened up their economy in many ways. And, and that's what started leading to their you know, economic uh, jump forward, the real jump forward uh, economically, which we saw in the 80s and 90s. So, so in the U.S. at the time, the idea was, was that if we allow China and encourage China to open up economically, eventually this will lead toward political liberalization as well meaning political uh, liberali liberalized economics are going to eventually somehow or another lead to democratization and liberal uh, politics. Kind of the similar argument to what goes on here in Israel around the Palestinians, right? Like mm -hmm. we need to give them more economic freedom 
and that will bring about some yeah. kind of like yeah. Ironically, this is some way it's still yeah. it's even itself a Marxist argument that's saying that ideas follow the economic structure, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Instead of having their own worth, that their ideas have their own value, that they are the real influencers long term in history and in politics. They say no, it's all the economic structures. It's you all change the money. The, you change the economic structure, and then you'll change the ideas, right? So yeah, in yeah. some ways, mm-hmm. it's still. Uh, it's still within the, uh, you know, uh, artificially Mar- Marxist ideas. Kissinger tried to change Marxism using a Marxist. Yo, again, so that part of it, I don't know like, uh, if the belief that they're going to eventually open up was, is something I would attribute to Kissinger, right? Kissinger okay. was just saying we have a stronger power that's a real threat, which is Soviet Russia, and we have a weaker power. So we need to separate them and, you know, and, and in order okay. to uh, deal with the Soviets. Right, and but, but that sort of took hold in the American thinking and yeah. you know, discourse on it. So before on. we get into what all of this has to do with Israel yeah. and the Middle East, can you give us a rundown real quick of like where it where it stands today, China versus the U.S. Like militarily, geopolitically, like yeah. what you know, who would give win? Us like a, who would win in yeah. the war? Yeah, the yeah, big yeah. war. Yeah. Okay. So that's a good question. For the most part, you could still say that the U.S. still leads the world by far. Let's say just military expenditures. They still invest more than you know about ten times as much. About there, I mean, the, about equal amount of the next ten countries after them. Yeah. Right. As far as overall military spending, so that's one way of measuring it. Although it's not really accurate because they spend a lot on wages, which the Chinese uh, military doesn't. Um, they also are more at the forefront of technology, even though the China has been stealing all of their best technologies and then reverse engineering them. And so they're sort of catching up. They're always a few steps behind. So the real technological technological edge is still in favor of the U.S., right? And uh, the U.S. has the ability to move large amounts of forces to the other side of the world using their aircraft carriers, which only the U.S. has like 10 aircraft carriers, which is essentially like a military base, you know, and, and the ability to then forward and move and deploy, you know, uh, they call it amphibious uh, forces. Forces they can then uh, uh, land on the ocean and then and then invade and invade an actual territory. No other country has that ability. Definitely not on that scale. China has like one aircraft carrier, one or two that they launched in the last uh, little while, and a few helicopter carriers. And they're not the same. They're not the same scale. Mm-hmm. But but it's not just an overall. You can't just look at the overall balance of power. You also have to look at the over the balance of wills and where this you know, where such a war would be played out, and it would be paying loud in China's backyard. And so China doesn't have to move all of its forces to actually threaten the U.S. homeland in order to have a serious war and to be a serious challenger in its own backyard. Hmm. Which is the South China Sea? Like, that's the that's the main battleground? Um, yeah, I mean, the U.S. is uh, officially uh, committed to the security of a number of states in the region, right? It has formal U.S. Tre- treaties with uh, South Korea, Japan, uh philippines taiwan no so taiwan it doesn't have a formal treaty with it has a vague uh commitment a vague vague commitment to saying china but huge technological interest oh yeah there's a lot of interest maybe even stronger than a pact yeah i would say i would definitely agree with that yeah that at the end of the day a pact is is a declaration Mm-hmm. A pact is a declaration, and so yeah, it has an effect. But strategic. But, uh, but when when push comes to shove, you know, some countries have you know not really lived up to their declarations, right? right. But they are going to live up. You can you might bank on them living up to their interests. Yeah, right. And um, that 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 
interest is the fact that Taiwan is the main producer of semiconductors. Yeah, that's one direct interest. Most of the people, this is an argument, this is debated in the US. And it's funny, I'm telling the our American audience about what's debated in the US, but uh, but we'll, we'll get to the Middle East, how all this influences the Middle it's East. It's fine because you're a Canadian. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, so that's that's a more immediate interest. But what people are arguing, and this again, so this is debated in the US. What is, when push comes to love, should we really be going, should the US really be going to war over Taiwan, right? And so the, the people that argue that they should, which is still more or less the consensus, say that if we don't stand up to Taiwan, then our entire uh, global strategy is going to fall apart because then Japan, South Korea, no one's going to rely on us anymore. Right. Even though we, don't, we, have, we didn't sign our name on the Pact of Taiwan, everyone understands that we've essentially declared that we're going to support Taiwan if China tries to evade them. So if they fail to do that, then no one's going to rely on the US anymore. But yeah. but but something doesn't doesn't sit well with me with this comparison to the Cold War because in the Cold War um, there was the Iron uh, Drape Cur- the Cur- 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 Curtain yeah. the Iron Curtain and and here with China and America they are so intertwined with each yeah. other so deeply deeply dependent on each other uh, like China is invested heavily invested in depth in America or vice versa. So America is in depth, mm. yes, and but China also invested in American companies mm. and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not sure they can even technically go to war in that, mm. no? Yeah, so th- that is a big difference, right? The uh, amount of uh, economic integration between the two countries. Uh, let's say what is uh, more similar, though, is the desire to uh, become dominant in more in, in various parts of the globe, right? So China's immediate uh, strategy is to make itself the dominant power in East Asia, right? But its broader strategy, it's looking at you know in the terms of decades, is to essentially replace the United States as the central power in all aspects of global politics. And that includes becoming dominant over all of Euro-Asia, like the general, the overland landmass that's not the Western Hemisphere. And that includes you know, Europe, Southern Asia, Middle East, Africa, Europe, and international institutions and economic institutions and, and all of that. That's really what the Chinese Communist Party is aiming at, right? So in that sense, it's still bringing it into a direct confrontation with the United States. Mm-hmm. Right? And just it might initially militarily the flashpoint would be in, in South Asia, but the, the overall strategic competition is that it's over that. Mm-hmm. So what is this mean other to than us? the light rail? What does this have <laughs> yeah. to do with uh, Israel? Right. Okay. So that's great. So so we just mentioned uh, the fact that China wants to become more dominant over all of Eurasia. Well, the Middle East is part of that. Right. It's actually a very significant part of that. Because, you know, Israel and the broader Middle East sits at the crossroads between the continents. And it's funny, you said 5,000 years, right? So so Israel really has had the same strategic sort of conundrum, challenge, since its uh, previous instantiations as a political entity in the First and Second Temple, right? Because this uh, powers, great powers, are interested in this area of the world. Mm-hmm. Right, because if you want to control the Middle East, then you want to control up to the Mediterranean. If you're in, if you're in ancient Egypt, then you want to control. You want to have your buffer zone coming into uh, the Levant, what they call this region, right? And if you're Rome, you want to be able to control uh, the entire Mediterranean basin. And the way to to move forces from Rome to the southern end, if you're not going to send them over in boats, is also to control this area of the world. So every, everyone wants a piece of this world. It's really of the, of this region. It's sitting right 
at the you know at the center of uh, global geopolitics if you have a a non-Western oriented or non-American oriented a worldview, right? Which is where the most of people are, which is, you know, difficult and sometimes for uh, Americans to understand because the, you know, New York is the center of the world in that, in that, in that worldview. But, uh, but, you know, uh, as far as a lot of other things, here's the center of the world. So how should is, I mean, personally, when I hear about Israeli Chinese relations, it, as a former, I mean, I'm still American by citizenship, but, you know, as former person who grew up in the States and lives in the States, and with that American identity in me, it's like very, it, it kind of makes me feel, you know, squeamish. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that Israel has has ties with such a, you know. Foul. Foul, mm-hmm. yeah, actor, global actor, and a communist power that does so much evil, and we all know about it. But... Where does that put us on, you know, in, in in geopolitics? Like, from your point of view, should we be playing uh, more strategically and be careful and tread lightly, and you know, kind of have Play our feet, fields. yeah, dip our dip our toes in both in both waters, or should we should we be taking more of an ideological stance mm, against right. authoritarianism? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, I would put it this way. First of all, before we ask, you know, about Israel's uh, connections with uh, China, communist China, right? Whatever connections that Israel has, the U.S. has vastly more deep and and more integrated connections with the fallow country of communist China, right? Whether it's economically or politically or populations that are that that study with each other, or the the, the United States is fully penetrated by. The Communist Party in many different dimensions, right? And as far as people, also militarily, people worry about Israel shouldn't be se- selling the China some dual-use technologies that might be used against uh, American, you know, forces if they were to have this battle over Taiwan, and and that's that's absolutely true. But if anyone's, if the U.S. forces are going to be attacked by dual-use technology originating in the West, it's going to be their own dual-use technologies that they're selling to China in a vastly larger scale than anything Israel's doing. But yeah, well, I don't I don't think Israel should could possibly consider the Ch- China as a um, uh, as an alternative great power supporter to the United States. That kind of world, I wouldn't want to live in that world. Like I, I wouldn't want that world to come about. That would be very, you know, dark scenario for the world, for Israel, for everyone. Right. So ideologically. I think Israel does have a very clear stance on that, and I would definitely support that stance. Um, how how yeah. so do we have that kind of stance? Like, what do we do? Well, I, I think that yeah. uh, the, the, the people in charge understand that that China is not really a, a viable alternative, and no one wants to, to have to, like, abandon the United States as a great power supporter and move to a, you know, a China... <laughs> do you think Chinese it's so one. clear? I mean, I don't know, maybe the current uh, powers that be, but... But culturally, we're not so. I feel like there aren't that many people who view China in the same way that you're right. That America mm. probably is much more integrated. But, but right. I feel like in maybe the average American still sees China as like the commies, mm. and and in Israel, it's like that's not so bad because we still have kibbutzim. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I I think I think it's it's an interesting point. I I would put it this way. I think in Israel, the attitude towards China is more of apathy. Uh, I don't know if it's necessarily because of our, you know, socialist hangover, which, yeah, when the general political culture is still still hangs around, hopefully we'll get over it in the neck in the coming decades. 
I don't know if it's necessarily that, though. I don't think people really perceive China as a communist country. They perceive it as a great power who is at least not anti-Israel, mm. right? There's a, this is a breath of fresh air. Like mo most of the external powers, if they're not the United States, then we have to deal with this, you know, oh, we don't really like you. We'd rather you didn't exist. Uh, you know, we don't, you know, we, we won't say it, but we, but we sort of, you know, we support your, your, your greatest enemies and, you know, and, and, and the fact that China doesn't really have a anti-Semitic, anti-Israel issue bone to pick with us is just like refreshing. But didn't they just sign a huge yeah. deal with Iran? That's what I wanted to say. It's not about okay. they don't, I, I feel like it's yeah. not about they don't have something against us and more that they don't care about the Palestinians. Okay, yeah, it goes right? together. I, th I would say it yeah, goes together. Yeah, but that's the holy grail. Like, that they don't mm. care about the Palestinians. Yeah, they can do a deal with Iran, as long as they don't care about no, the Palestinians. I, I, I don't know about that. Also, I'm, I'm, I want to separate when we're trying to analyze the general Israeli attitude of, like, the, you know, public attitude toward China and then these other, you know, latest developments and strategic calculations, mm. right? So I'm saying that in the, like, Israeli public perception, China is, like, this place where you buy stuff from and it's far away and they don't hate us and, uh, and they're kind of foreign and kind of cool. Right. They're not they're not communist in the Israeli public perception. They're just sort of weird and big and, and you know, and, you know, take up a lot of large part of the population of, of the population of the world. And, you know, and they sell stuff for cheap. Right. But but strategically, though, I think I think every the it's understood in the system in the Israeli security establishment and in the political echelon that we do need to be cautious over what we sell and, and our own exposure in Israeli high tech or the, you know, Israeli high-tech slash military high-tech, uh, that we need to be careful about that, not in order to not undermine our great, our American friends, in order to not expose our own new technologies that we are the source of to be stolen by the CCP as well, right? And so in the recent years, and this is something only in the, in the past few years that's become more uh, um, formulated and more uh, formalized, uh, that that Israel is actually very careful now about what it's going to cooperate with China and what it's not going to cooperate with. Uh, with. What does that cooperation look like, like historically and also in the last mm -hmm. couple of years, like you've mentioned, like what kind of like what what is China's level of investment here in high tech? What kind of cooperation is there militarily? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, overall, again, it's a lot less than most of the rest of the West. Uh, the U.S. Uh, sorry, uh, Israel-China relations is really from the 1990s onward. Um, and and even more so in the last decade or so. So China is part part of its grand strategy is to be able to go and offer various countries that they can do big infrastructure projects, right? That will be for your own benefit, right? And we can offer a better price than most of the competitors, right? And uh, so countries that are not careful and they don't they can't fund that on their own, then they're also able they're also exposed to. Uh, Chinese, uh, the, the CCP's ability to then offer them loans with uh, difficult, um, what's the word, um, you know, re re repayments that, mm. that then put collateral various strategic assets of the country, right? In some ways, they've sort of, once the country, that it's made, they make them a good offer. This is what happened in Sri Lanka, right? So the Chinese make them a really good offer that will we'll, we'll develop all of these things and railroads and, and, and buildings and, you know, tunnels and all that and, uh, and uh, communications infrastructure, and we'll offer you the financing as well under certain terms. But if you don't pay it back, then we get to establish military bases and we own this and we own that and we own you, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's what they do for a lot of countries. Now, Israel is not in that position because it's relatively economic stable and not 
stupid enough they to do that. They literally write that. They say we'll be. No, they won't write. Like, we'll own you. But but no, like there's no, various part. There's various conditions. We can, we can uh, establish a military base. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we own like then we we take we retake ownership of the infrastructure in certain parts. And in order to take ownership, if you can't we need to back. establish a military if you, or base or whatever. If you can't pay us back, and we get to we get to put whatever we want in that in those okay. bases. Okay. Right or uh, or or other the other various collaterals that wind up making the country very beholden to uh, okay. the preferences of the CCP. Uh-huh. Right, but Israel's not in that position. Israel's not going to do that yeah. because economically, it's not Sri Lanka and it's not other countries in Africa. Right, and it knows how to yeah, but make deals in a way a that's not going to do a that. Two thousand and eight in Israel, or a worse, a nineteen twenty nine. We Israel, could, but first of all, Israel's not making those kinds of agreements with its even with its big infrastructure projects. Okay. It's not Why, opening the, itself. The to that. Chinese port in Haifa, yeah, they do have some kind of autonomy there, no. Uh, I don't want to go into details. Also, I don't know all the details because I don't know the details. Of every Are you afraid thing. to get no, no, uh, taken China. down by? Uh, <laughs> it doesn't sound like someone who's afraid to. <laughs> Of China. Um, yeah. <laughs> By the way, it's I'm joking, but you know, people, well, well, uh, yeah. just a side yeah, note, sure. when this port was built and I was doing a political race uh, in Haifa in 2018, uh, someone I worked with said that uh, people are afraid to talk about the port because uh, people are afraid of China. Uh, yeah, perhaps. I can tell you why the people that I know that know a little bit more about it than I do say and that's that this has become a way blown out of proportion political issue more than it is an actual technical issue mm-hmm. right and and so i mean if it was that you know chinese really controlled all of different uh you know all the communications there and they had access to the radars and the other you know they were able to spy on the u.s fifth fleet or the u.s fleet in the mediterranean fifth or sixth and um then you know there might be something to it but most of them say this is not true this is not how we've built it we've constructed it in a way that doesn't actually expose China to the secrets. There's firewalls. There's there's protections in place against this. And it really just became this this big political symbol a few years ago. And uh, Secretary of State Pompeo was in Israel, and and it sort of blew up on the headlines. Mm-hmm. But that's not really the issue, right? The issue is more uh, high tech uh, companies, investments from high tech companies that um, that that are being you know invested in by um, by giant Chinese yeah. high-tech companies. Like Platica, the, for example. Right, that was, uh, right. and then that exposes them. They, they have to, uh, that exposes their secrets and their technical secrets to China that can then yeah. take them. And, and it, you have to understand, there is no Softbank real... SoftBank isn't uh, Japanese? No, I think SoftBank yeah. is a big Chinese... So, uh, no? Yeah, so, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know SoftBank, that one, uh, I think, were invested in eToro, and they're big Chinese... Okay. Uh, you have to understand, even though China opened up its economy and it nominally has a private industry and all that, there is no real private, independent uh, companies in China, right? They are yeah. all beholden to the CCP. All of the people that manage them are party are part of the party. Yeah. They they are all uh, penetrated by Chinese intelligence, and they're essentially forced to cooperate and pass on information to Chinese intelligence. For example, yeah. Uh, there is one industry, here's a riddle for you, master. There is an industry that is completely, completely ruled by China, by Chinese industry. And it's deeply, deeply, um, like it's controlling, it's, it's everywhere in the Western world, everywhere. Can mm. you guess it? Chinese food. Oh, no. <laughs> Drones. Uh-huh. Drones, because DJI, the drone company, it is the only drone company. Like there are other drone companies, but it's but nobody buys another like drones from another company. It's they are completely homogenous 
in the drone industry, uh, big drones, industrial drones, and also hobby drones, only mm-hmm. DJI, and it's a Chinese company. Mm-hmm. And of course, the intelligence is, um, is like incredible, mm-hmm. right? Because people fly all over the place. It all goes through, through the app, which isn't even, the app isn't even in the app store. You need to download it. From the Chinese. Yeah, uh, from DJI. From <laughs> yeah, they, it's not in the app store. Wow. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So that that's exactly my point. Right. So so that's the real exposure, the the real uh, uh, issue, not uh, the tunnel through Har Carmel and Haifa mm-hmm. or or other sort of low tech big projects, right? But that's exactly that's a great point because that that's demonstrative of uh, of Chinese penetration into the Middle East because China is sell- China is selling drones to uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, U- United Arab Emirates, mm-hmm. and that's one of their main. Uh, that's their first step into Middle East arms, right? Up until now, over the past 20 years, everyone used to say China only wants to trade with Middle East countries. It's happy with U.S. controlling the security, U.S. controlling the security of the Persian Gulf. The U.S. provides stability. China enjoys this by having a, a, flow, of, a flow of energy coming out through the Persian Gulf, which it desperately needs. And, and it only wants to trade with people. But that, that was true maybe in the 90s and 2010s. But recently, now it's clear that China is wants to be and seeks to be more influential, both militarily, strategically, what we saw with the deal, the, the um, in, uh, strategic cooperation agreement with Iran two years ago, the moderating the diplomatic renewal of diplomatic relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran, right, and selling arms and, and bases in uh, Djibouti and, and other places. And, and one last thing I have to ask you, because we had a guest a few months ago, an analyst and economist, Economist David Wu, and he said that in his opinion, um, the Ukraine-Russia war is a proxy war. So Ukraine is obviously proxy of America. That's mm. easy to prove. But he said, look, Russia is a proxy of China, and it's maybe it's more an indirect proxy. But when you think about it, like China is funding Iran, and Iran is selling the weapons mm. to Russia. There is a kind of a connection there. I mean, I mean yeah, you could say that. I, I don't know proxies really characterizes a relationship in the most accurate way, but definitely the one of the results of the war, uh, Russia-Ukraine war, is that it sort of is exposed that Russia as not quite as powerful as maybe it seemed to be, at least militarily, and it has increased its dependence on China. Right, because of the sanctions that the West has put under it, so it needs to sell its oil and its resources somewhere. Now it's selling it to East Asia and selling it to China. And, but and but China is the powerful, is the stronger figure in this relationship here, right? Uh, so so this is one of the I mean, big also sort probably of changes. Gained, huh? gain, it probably also gained geopolitical confidence in quotes, right? Because it had this, you know, quote unquote, big scary bear on its northern front, but really it turns out it's not. Mm-hmm. That yeah. big and not that scary. Yeah, and now a lot more dependent on yeah. its on its cooperation with China itself. Yeah, and so that's definitely a uh, so, so I don't when go so far as a proxy, but there's definitely that dynamic. It's also changed the dynamic uh, with Iran vis-a-vis Iran, where let's say if 10, 15 years ago, the U.S. started putting sanctions on Iran in order to you know disrupt its uh, you know make it pay for its mili- for its uh, nuclear program. It needed the cooperation of Russia and China, at least needed the cooperation to get the broad UN Security Council sanctioned uh, sanctions, right? Uh, there are some unilateral sanctions they can do either way, right? And, and maybe the, I mean, those are some are more important. But a good, a big part of that was cooperation of Russia and China, 
right? So, but today that's not going to happen. Russia, Russia at the time played the sort of double role. Where on the one hand, it supports Iran to a certain extent and sold it some of the reactors and technology, but it also was sort of like holding Iran back and then also withholding a lot of its own technology that Iran wanted. And, uh, and it was playing this, we're a responsible stakeholder in the, you know, the US-led order and all of that. Now you can throw that all out the window. Like that's not the situation anymore. Now Iran is almost, almost solely, almost exclusively an asset to Russia in its broader comp- competition. Right, it's only it's only a plus. So now Iran is, is you know supporting Russia, and there's also an expectation that Russia will now support Iran in a more uh, you know uh, clear or, you know way. So the America America pushing for or allegedly for Israel Saudi Arabia deal is that some kind of a way to for America to bring back its homogeny in the Middle East? Mm, yeah, I would say more try desperate plea to not lose it to, to avoid losing it uh-huh. the the trend over the last decade is where the gulf monarchies are looking around and their major threat is iran right that's like if it, not israel it's not anyone else it's, it's very clearly iran and that is a strategic threat to saudi arabia it's not just their issues of uh throwing missiles at their uh oil refineries in the gulf which is definitely an issue but long term Iran wants to be in control of the uh, the two holy cities of Islam right it wants to be it wants to be it is the legitimate custodian of the two uh, holy cities of Islam and that's you know means Saudi Arabia can't exist right and um, so that is the major struggle in the in the like simple regional right and right, Iran also doesn't really want us to exist either right do you think that that'll play out at some point in the near future like an Iran Saudi war um no probably not but this is what I, this is what I, what I want to say that uh, so Saudi Arabia is looking okay for the for decades the US has been its security supporter the to uh, Saudi Arabia and the rest of the Arab Gulf monarchies but uh, the US has increasingly made itself look out uh, out to look as an unreliable supporter right because of a number of times first of all, it's uh, not supporting the Uh, Saudi Arabia's actions toward the Houthi, the Houthis uh, in uh, Tim in Yemen and uh, it didn't react in any significant way after the Iranian attack on Saudi oil refineries and the joint attack from the Houthis and the Iranians on other uh, installations and so there over the past 10 years save certain time under Trump but even also even including Trump's for because he was also very hesitant to directly uh, counter Iranian uh, aggression so they've been losing their confidence in the fact that the US is going to be their big reliable supporters if push comes to shove with shove with Iran so they're looking to hedge right that's hedging it's simple hedging Meaning we're looking to look for alternatives. Now, so as opposed to the, the Israel, Saudi Arabia is cool with whoever is willing to support them. So, but they're, they're going to the Chinese who are yep. also supporting their enemies in this war. Yeah, but th- that's essentially what, that's what hedging is, especially the, the UAE. So they've, they've said this, uh, I've heard, I've heard uh, you know, Emirati analysts say this uh, as well very clearly. Let's say in 10, 10, 15 years ago, they were almost the most aggressive and you know, forward-leaning against Iran. Right. Oh. And the, the UAE, the Emiratis. Oh, okay. And they were they fought they fought in they sent forces to uh, Algeria or to Lu- to Libya. They 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 were more gung ho, they won't support an Israeli strike on Iran. But as they realize that uh, they don't necessarily they can't necessarily rely on the US back, uh, they've shifted their strategy 
to try to minimize the threat from Iran. The, the Iranian threat is not going to go away, but they say we're the most exposed to it. We're just a skip and a jump over across the Straits of Hormuz from Iran. So we're better off trying to restrain them and have, they do have diplomatic relations with them. They have ways of communicating. And they said, look, let's be a little less forward-leaning. This is, the, in, in international relations term, they call this bandwagging, bandwagoning. You can balance or you can bandwagon, right? You can, so, so if there's a big, uh, you know, monster in the room, so even though it's still a threat, you try to want to appease it a little bit. And that's more or less the direction that they're doing. They want to use the Chinese to help restrain Iran. How so? Well, by, by, if China becomes more of a direct supporter of Iran and, you know, signing these agreements economically and strategically, then it has more, influence. it has more way and, you know, weight and influence in te- te- decision making in Tehran. Okay. Right. And China and itself also has the same very strong interest in keeping the stability of oil and energy flowing through the Persian Gulf. Ah, okay. Right? So that's a that's a co-interest of the UAE and Saudi Arabia and the Chinese to sort of keep the Iranians, you know, uh, relaxed. At bay. Yeah. In Hebrew, there's this expression, <coughs> it's like uh, weeping of, of generations Generation. to come. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but think about the invasion to Iraq. Right, because I you know I remember I was a kid, but in Israel we, we rejoiced mm. because everyone hated Saddam and uh, and the Iraqi regime, and we were um, deterred and afraid from them. But maybe in retrospect, it was a very bad uh, bad decision because instead of Iraq and Iran fighting with each other, killing each other, it allowed the Iranian homogeny. Yeah, uh, definitely it removed the major state balancer of Iran, yeah. right? That was what was preventing, Iran wants to reach, it wants to create what they call a, a Shiite crescent, meaning a hegemony that goes from Iran, uh, Iraq, uh, Syria, Lebanon, out to the Mediterranean, right? And, and Iraq was the big obstacle in the way uh, of its, uh, you know, doing that. And once the U.S. Uh, toppled Saddam Hussein and uh, turned it into sort of a rump state that doesn't have the same amount of power, then, yeah, that allowed Iran to uh, move a lot closer toward realizing that that goal. On the other hand, I mean, so, yeah, so that, you know, turned out not to be so great. On the other hand, uh, retrospect at the time, I- I'm not too hard on, you know, uh, on the... The, the, they, the, you have to remember it after 9-11 what the atmosphere was in the United States. They were literally felt that they were under attack and this could happen again like next week. Yeah. Right? And they were felt like that for a while. So, I mean, there's always there's all various theories and uh, people want to talk about Iraqi oil and other, you know, various ideas that, you know, maybe they played a role to a certain extent. Um, but I don't think that was the main issue. I think the main issue, was, uh, this was a miscalculation at the time. Israel was saying, no, no, you got to go to Iran first. Iran is the major issue. Right, but they didn't listen to us. Mm-hmm. Oh well. So okay. So do you think we'll have a deal with Saudi Arabia? Um, okay, right. So this brings us back to why is the U.S. pursuing this right now? Because they realized belatedly that if they keep on, if the Biden administration in particular keeps on its policy of turning a cold shoulder to Saudi Arabia, saying we don't like your domestic politics, we don't like how you weren't careful enough to avoid civilian casualties of, uh, journalists. In, in, uh, in Yemen. Yeah, you're uh, taking out journalists or, you know, intelligence figures who also pose as journalists, going into the details of that case. But okay, it's not like considered acceptable, right? So they have this big bone to pick with Saudi Arabia. 
and so and so that does that's not encouraging like that's just encouraging Saudi Arabia to go look for alternatives, which is China, right? So out of a belated understanding that this is the the dynamic and that's what they want to uh, change. So in the past few months, though, the Biden administration is doing a lot more in order to see if they could broker a deal that would lead to diplomatic relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Right. So you're saying, do I think it would happen? Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, it could happen. It a lot depends on whether the, whether the U.S. incentivizes, but plays a it plays its role in a wise way, and. Um, I think that f- first of all, you need to uh, first thing to understand is that all the deals that Israel has made, all its peace agreements with all of the different regions, are first and foremost because they are the, in the interests of Israel and that country, mm-hmm. right? But, and anytime, anytime it was it succeeded, it was because there was a fundamental uh, mutual interest for both countries and understanding that this is in our interest to do it. And then the U.S. had a positive role in bringing it to the finish line, maybe incentivizing various uh, things, adding a little bit more cards to the table. No, there's also negotiation. You add a few more cards to the table, then it allows for, you know, a few more more flexibility. But it's only when it's fundamentally already started, almost already happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the the countries were talking directly as well. This happened with Egypt, right? Uh, The um, Israel-Egypt peace in in the 70s. First of all, it was an Israeli-Egyptian initiative. Right, that then the Carter administration invited everyone to the U.S. and they, you know, made it official. Same thing with Egypt, Israel, Jordan. Right, same thing with Abraham Accords as well. And so the same thing applies also to Saudi Arabia, meaning it is a Saudi interest to open up its cooperation with Israel beyond the uh, under the table military cooperation that right. exists already. It is also an Israeli interest, and I, we could argue that it's also an American interest. But it's first of all all of these things before uh, before it's before it's anything else and various ideas of things that are not in really in our interest that the U.S. might allow to get mixed up in the bag that might mess it all so up. So give it more than 50%? I don't know. Uh, I, don't know. I don't know. Give it's, us it's a not headline. An issue. Give us some you know, I'll tell you, it's not, an, it's not <laughs> an issue of percentage. It really depends on the details, right? So uh, let's say the, the, the things that Saudi Arabia wants is, are well-known. Uh, Weapons. We could point them. Yeah, so it Nuclear. wants, it, first of all, it wants some sort of formal... Uh, declaration or pact or some sort of more formalized uh, commitment of the U.S. to support its long-term security. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's, again, because it's first and foremost threatened by Iran and it wants, and, and it's uh, the reliability of the U.S. has been undermined. It wants them to strengthen the commitment. The details are a little bit, you know, uh, cloudy, but that's, what it, that's the one thing. It wants more open access and direct access to advanced American weapons Right now, it's limited. I mean, it still buys almost all, almost all of its weapons from the U.S., but it's it's limited to a certain extent as to what precisely it can get, and it wants uh, more open uh, access to the market and better weapons, right? And uh, third, it wants to develop its civilian nuclear uh, technology. Aha, uh, civilian. Okay, well, uh, it, it it definitely wants civilian. So everybody's now, calling it nowadays, right? So I mean, so you could argue that it wants the nuclear infrastructure as also as a hedging in the into in the scenario where Iran gets nuclear weapons, it'll already have the basis, right? I'm sure that's also part of it, but uh, on paper, officially, it wants a civilian nuclear infrastructure, it wants American support in doing that, right? Now, those are Saudi interests, right? That's what they want. One thing though that is not a Saudi interest is Israeli concessions to the PLO, to the Palestinians, right? That in no way is actually a Saudi interest. That's an ideological, 
necessity that Saudi Arabia pays lip service to it because for the past decades it's been busy brainwashing its own population that Israel is illegitimate and it needs to support the Palestinians and all of this, right? But for over 10 years, for a while now, the, the Saudis themselves have recognized that this is not really in their interest to have a full, fully-fledged Palestinian state, definitely not one that's con a direct continuation of the current Palestinian state, and, uh, and, and so, but, but it needs to do something. The past. Right. So this is this is the most contentious maybe part of it. Oh, there's some contentious parts to the other ones, but I think the most contentious. But issue. contentious for the Saudis, meaning do they really care? Or are they right, ready so to sign a deal? If the United States gives them all three of the things you mentioned, do 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 you see them saying, wait, 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 we need something for the Palestinians? Yeah. So what I think, my analysis is that they feel that they need to say something. They need to do something because they've 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 put themselves into this corner. Right. As also domestically, right? if they do it, they also have faced the issue of their own domestic politics and they're undergoing tremendous transitions domestically in Saudi Arabia right now. So, so they want to sort of avoid this backlash and they want to show their solidarity and their continuity. continuity. There's an issue of the, the actual king, right? We're talking about MBS, but he's just the, you know, the second, in, he's the de facto person in charge, but uh, the king the, of, of Saudi Arabia, he belongs to the previous generation. He doesn't like the idea so much of uh, normalization. Um, and, and so they need to show, they need to save face and show that they did something or tried to get something for the Palestinians. But between that and actual interests of what they will agree to, let's say if Israel holds its own and says, we're not making any significant concessions, not territory, we're not making long-term or permanent concessions, we're not giving away, you know, and we're not doing anything that will limit our security, our ability to, uh, you know, counterterrorism and all that. And then what it needs to find something, some sort of bone that we can throw them of this face saving bone that doesn't actually cost Israel any, uh, you know, hardcore assets. What? Right. Like, we'll, pass well what we did, what the... we did with UAE is, uh, is that we put uh, annexation of various parts of Area C and, 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 you know, and other parts of Judea and Samaria on the table. If you remember, this was the big issue in Israel for months preceding the announcements of the first Abraham Accords, yeah. the first trench, right? And then we said, okay, we're going to delay that. We're going to commit to not annexing various parts of Judah Samaria for a, I don't know, a, a publicly they said an, un, the, a, an undefined amount of time. They might have come to maybe a certain amount of years or two years or something like that, right? So <laughs> that, funny, even like though... Like an undefined amount of time is like meaningless. <laughs> um, well, right. Okay, so I think behind closed doors there might have been a definition, but it wasn't a long-term one okay right so they need something like that right that we could do maybe it would be slightly longer we have longer an undefined commitment we can't say if it's a commitment well, we're not going to do tomorrow we took it we're off not, the it's table undefined. <laughs> we, t we took it off the table yeah okay. right and so and so that was enough of a concession for the uae to say hey look we, we they were they were about to do this and we stopped them by doing it and then yeah, now we can yeah. go along but but my, the main issue that that i want to emphasize is that Right now, there's a lot of fog being put out there as if, oh, there's this expectation that if Israel wants this, it's going to have to make these big concessions, right? And, and what I'm saying is that's not really what's going on. And that's not really what the, the, Saudi, the Saudis are going to insist on. And, uh, and Israel doesn't, all it needs, Israel needs to do is hold its own and say, you know, the very minimum, this is, the, this is what we're going to do and we're not going to do that. Do you want to deal or not? It sounds like they don't really need to do much. Well, uh, Again, Judging so part, the UAE is a part of this is the Biden administration, it seems, or at least the extreme left in the United States are trying to force this issue into the into the negotiations where it doesn't need to be there. Mm. Right. Because that's their agenda. Right. It's not it's not it's not the majority of the Israeli public or the Israeli government. It's not the Saudis issue. It's the 
Israeli and American left that really care about this issue that are trying to conflate it with the actual story of interests that are at play here. And so this is my analysis. That's why I'm saying that Israel all needs to do is really be clear about what are what are talking points and what are real interests. I want to I want to make that a little bit clear. No Arab country actually ever really promoted the idea of a Palestinian state. They never supported it. They never wanted it in the 50s. It was between Egypt and uh, and Syria. They both said that they they should be owning this part of land. No one thought that it should be a Palestinian state, right? They had what they called the United uh, Arab Republic, U the UAR. Look it up, right? That they, they, they essentially made some sort of deal that Egypt and Syria are united under a general republic, and Israel needs to go. But it's part of that. No one thought it should be a Palestinian state. Jordan, Lebanon. No, none of them have ever actually ever thought that that was a great idea, uh, an independent Palestinian state, right? And because uh, they know the Palestinians, right? Because it's it will be a competitor for them too. It it just doesn't make sense on so many levels, especially now that we look at the, the current state of the Palestinian Authority, which is a dysfunctional, corrupt, hostile, you know, pre-state or, yeah. or you know entity. Make Gaza look like a stable and uh, right. Everyone, functioning. Right. Everyone knows <laughs> if there was elections in the PA, Hamas would come to would come to power. Right. That's not in Saudi's interest. Saudi is against the Muslim Brotherhood. Right. All the, the UAE is against the Muslim Brotherhood. That is one of that is their second threat after after the Iranian the Shiite extreme threat uh, Islamism. The threat of Shiite Islamism is Sunni Islamism. That's their second threat. They don't want another uh, Muslim Brotherhood state. That can then threaten threaten Israel, which is now an asset and uh, a strategic asset to to Saudi Arabia, right? And no one actually wants this. No, the so 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 we don't actually have to promote it. Even more so, I'll mention that recently, yeah, Mahmoud Abbas traveled to China and signs also some sort of deal that uh, it's not clear what the details are, but some sort of strategic memorandum of understanding with the CCP. Right, so if there was a Palestinian state, then it would probably align itself with China and Russia politically, right? Not just trade, right? So, so this is definitely not in an American. It's not American interest either, right? So, 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 so we need to be very clear about what uh, needs to be done, what needs to be conceded in order to get, uh, in order to have uh, uh, an agreement, and what doesn't, right? And not, and not getting dra be, get dragged into this. Oh, this is a wonderful thing for Israel, which it would be. As if it, it's more wonderful for us than it is for the other parties. Everyone wa everyone has an interest in this, so everyone needs to make a deal based on that. Yeah, and make concessions. So, Bibi yeah. has is widely uh, credited with architecting this whole like how. Where do you put the the like the conception the inception of this of this this strategy? Of like ignoring the Palestinians and going to the wider Arab world, mm -hmm. um, where do you put the the inception of that? And was it really Bibi who kind of, or pioneered. was it more pioneered it and like structured it, or was it more of just him being an opportunist and taking advantage of some mm -hmm. moments? Yeah, well, actually, I would put this back to the 1990s. Actually, this was this was in some ways the uh, the debate going on uh, within Israel's, you know, strategic elite in the 1990s, what they were saying is that, as is this just after the, you know, in the context of Oslo and after signing the agreement with Jordan, everyone understood that Iraq and Iran were this long-term threat that was going to threaten Israel. And one wing in Israel uh, felt that the peace was about to break out, right? This was Oslo, we were going to establish the PA, and uh, and then we were going to make peace with Syria, right? By withdrawing from the Golan, 
And then, so, so the discussion was, the debate was whether we need to first of all make peace with Syria and the Palestinians, right? Because it's possible and it's just about to happen, right? So we just need to make an effort and make concessions in order to get that. And then we create this sort of interior circle of prosperity and cooperation that will strengthen us in the next fight in the outer circle, which is Iraq and Iran. Right, this is what Rabin was say, was thinking. This is Shimon Peres. This is what Ehud Barak was thinking, right? And that's why Barak made such a big effort. All of them made such an effort to bend over backwards to make concessions concessions to Palestinians and to the Syrians to try and have these peace deals, right? Because this was out of this what I would say is an ideological commitment that peace is uh, possible and that Oslo and Arafat really is uh, wanting, desiring peace. And, uh, and all we need to do is just make these territorial and other concessions in order to get there. And that'll strengthen us against the farther ones. The other wing, which was led by Netanyahu, and even though I give him great credit, it's not, it's not just Netanyahu. He's surrounded by a you know, circle of many people with, both within the establishment and his closer advisors that develop this strategy and see eye to eye on this. Uh, but Netanyahu is the politician who has led this strategy. They said, no, this is the opposite. Right, because they didn't think even at the time of Oslo, they said this is not leading toward peace. Arafat doesn't want peace. Right? This is just the first stage or the next stage in their ongoing war to destroy Israel. Right? Therefore, we can't bend over backwards to make concessions here. That's not gonna help us. What we need to do is concentrate on lowering the threat, lowering the threat of terrorism, putting the brakes on Oslo as much as possible, because we're on really in 1996, 1997, once Netanyahu was prime minister the first time. So Oslo was already going put the brakes on us low, deal with terrorism, but not make any concessions, not bend over backwards on that, in order to then focus on dealing with what at the time was the threat from Iraq and 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 Iran. And this was this was the this was the argument, right? And so same thing you say in the two thousands, right? So at first there was uh um the second intifada, what they call, which may be more accurately called the Oslo War, right? Or Oslo Terror War, uh, because it resulted from Oslo and then the uh um the withdrawal from Lebanon in early 2000, right, under Ehud Barak. And uh, so that, that was sort of uh, intense and they had to deal with we that. Need, but we then, need to go back. I'm going to put a pin in that because I want to hear Yo, that. I want to go back to that yeah, too, okay. yeah. But uh, so, then, so then you have Sharon. And again, so he's faced with this issue. Okay, uh, in 2002, Iran was just caught with its uh, um, secret, uh, its covert Iranian enrichment, uranium enrichment facilities, Natanzan Arak. It's the first time, you know, in 2000, whatever the intelligence was known, that was made known. That was the first time they put the Iranian nuclear program on the, the, you know, in the center, front and center of the global security, definitely Israeli security. He had that, and he had the idea of Gaza withdrawal. And he had the options of going with both, and he chose to go for Gaza withdrawal, right? This is 2003, 2004, right? Out of this uh, sort of, you know, and it's not that Sharon didn't think that the Iranian nuclear program was a threat, but he thought, we need to solve this. Same thing with Olmert, went to Annapolis, right, to try again to offer the Palestinians a, 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 a state on a silver platter with half of Jerusalem and all those, on all those details. Why? Because it's not that he, Olmert didn't think that the, the, the Iranian group was a threat, but he said, we can do this. And if you see him, you, if you talk to him today, read his biography that he published a few years ago, he wrote a really fat biography because he had a lot of time. He had a lot of time because he was in prison for a few years, right? So uh, he writes it in the day, right? A lot of the great greatest uh, books were written in prison. Not that his book is so great, but he, he tells them, um, he yeah, tells the... <laughs> I'm not sure that's a great, uh, yeah. But what he says the, in the, the book, The other book though, written in prison was... Uh, what he says in the book, though, is that he believes he was this close to having a deal. This is what you need to finish your novel, Eitan. <laughs> Go to prison. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> 
So he says he believes he was this close to deal with Abbas in 2008 in Annapolis, right? It just, it, it could have happened, right? Because again, it's this ideological, what I would say, belief that peace is right around the corner, mm-hmm. right? That they'd not actually, it's not, if, it's not just another phase in their hundred year war against the Jewish state, but it's just an issue of making things a little bit better for them, a little bit more recognition, um, uh, improving the economic uh, sphere, uh, and then and then we're going to be there. So Olmert also said this is an inter- Iran. The Iran issue is an international issue. The U.S. needs to deal with it first and foremost. Everyone needs to deal with it, except for Israel doesn't need to be in the front front and center of the issue, mm. right? And and then in 2009 when Netanyahu came back to power, he reversed it again. He says this is the front time when Netanyahu put the Iranian issue back front and center as the uh, primary issue of national security that Israel needs to deal with. And the Palestinian issue to an issue that needs to be managed, right? And so it was flipped back. And that's sort of where, that's what eventually led to the Abraham Accords, meaning the consistency of Israel taking a front, front leading, forward leaning and front and center issue, uh, lead, also globally lead toward the Iranian nuclear program that, that made it into an asset for uh, the UAE and Saudi Arabia against Iran. Because they said, oh, look, Israel, they're dealing with our biggest threat. Right? So we want to support them in that. Right? Mm-hmm. We want that. That's what makes Israel into, a, into an asset for, for the region as well. Right? And definitely for the, Uni- for the United States as well. Mm, I see. You want to put a pin, you put a pin on something? Yeah, no, but it's interesting. It's, bec- it's like instead of staying neutral, like there's these two big, big uh, giants fighting in our backyard. And instead of like staying neutral and maybe even poking around in this contentious issue that's like, that's that they're supposed to be paying lip service to you're saying let's take a side of one of their these giants like let's do something that puts us on the side of one of them and gives them gives us a strategic edge you're saying between saudi arabia and iran yeah yeah yeah. i mean right i mean we're obviously doing it for our own interests first of all because we're also threatened by iran but what i'm saying is when israel takes a a strong uh and assertive stance against its major threats that brings it respect, and that turns it's that's what turns it into a strategic asset yeah. to other partners that are looking from the sidelines, both regionally Saudi Arabia as well as the United States. So we need to wrap up, but I just kind of want I, I have to hear your the theory of like why the second intifada is the is the um, the consequence of uh, Oslo and uh, the pulling out of Lebanon. Uh, okay, so uh, we really need to go back to the eighties, right? So I'd say that again, when Israel act assertively and uh, and with clarity and also with more clarity about its own justification and own justice and its own uh, create you know uh, justness of his cause um, that lead that has a sort of snowball effect that leads it toward being more secure and having more power and bring it, bring it bring it brings it friends and allies and the opposite is also true when Israel takes withdrawals makes uh, tremendous concessions that threaten its own security, uh, runs after deals and pieces of paper that say peace, even though it's not clear that the other side is interested in peace and, uh, and, and shows weakness and hesitancy, that brings the opposite effect. It brings upon us, it strengthens our enemies in their uh, insistence that they really will be able to eventually uh, uh, end the, the Zionist project. So in the, in the 80s, so we're on the back of the first Lebanon war, there was what they called the, uh, the, the Jibril deal. Right where Israel released some few hundreds of terrorists with blood on their hands, in the, the context precedent. of this deal. Yeah, it was the first precedent of that, and it was mainly all of it was these. Begin, these uh, I think. No, no, it was not Paris. Begin. It was, it was Paris. Paris? Yeah. Okay. And um, and and so th- that 
that sort of was one big step that then brought in um, PLO terrorists into Judean Samaria, Judea and Samaria, who then es essentially fomented the first intifada. Okay, the first intifada then threatened and became the big public issue, and that sort of made Israel. 1989. Yeah, 1989. They released Lebanese prisoners. Well, they weren't Lebanese; they were Palestinians, but they were in Lebanon. Ah, okay. Right, and they released and, and them and allowed them to come into Judea and Samaria. Ah, I see. Right, yeah. and that was sort of like the 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 infrastructure for the terrorism that then became the first intifada in 1989 they brought that upon themselves we didn't know or like the dealing with the first intifada was a threat was a challenge and that made uh which was at least politically and maybe for a lot of uh, some of israel's leaders on the left felt that oh look this shows that the status quo is unsustainable and we can't stay in control of judea and samaria and we have to make some sort of process and this was the impetus for the oslo process we're saying we're going to bring in the PA, we're going to bring the, the PLO, the Palestinian Liberal, Liber, Liberation Organization. From Tunisia. Which, yeah, well, because they were in exile in Tunisia, right? Because we had up until now said the PLO is illegitimate. It's an illegitimate terrorist group. It doesn't represent the Arabs that live in Jordan, Samaria. And we're not going to talk to them because they want to kill us, right? It's noteworthy. When is When was the PLO founded? 64. Yeah. Right? Oh, oh, what do they want to liberal, liberal? They want to liberate Palestine. They want to liberate from where? From what territory? Jordan. Right? No, from Israel proper. Right? Where did, was, did Israel control Judea and Samaria in 1964? Yeah, no. no, but they wanted to liberate Palestine because they mean they want to liberate it of Jews of Israel yeah. proper. It doesn't matter any borders. Right? So, so they brought that all in. That led to the second, the first Intifada. The first Intifada made some part of the Israeli political echelon. Uh, um, overly zealous to come to some sort of agreement to pass on the control of the place. And this is where the impetus for Oslo came. Okay, Oslo, and in that context and the belief that uh, one more, a few more steps and, we're and we have peace, uh, led also uh, Ehud Barak to say we need to uh, withdraw from Lebanon. Ehud Barak comes to power in 1999. He says, I'm going to do two things within a year. I'm going to get peace with Palestinians. I'm going to get us out of the security zone yeah. in Lebanon. That was Lebanon. his campaign, to be fair. That was uh, his campaign when he ran. He, he, he did run on that. Was this promise. was against, this was, by the way, the, against the um, recommendations of the IDF at the time. The IDF said, okay, there was a problem. There was the, uh, the incident with the, uh, with the helicopter and a number. There was a, there was a price to be paid for staying in Lebanon. But overall, my claim is that, is that the, the idea that Israel couldn't have stayed there and it couldn't have stayed in the security zone in southern Lebanon and it was unsustainable, I think that's a... That's an ideological claim, right? That's that's Ed Barak's view. It's not an absolute. It's not absolutely true. We could have stayed there, and it was it was Ed Barak's insistence that we must leave in order to come to some sort of deal with Syria, allow uh, essentially made him made, forced him or you know brought him to do it. Okay, so the withdrawal from so we had both Oslo and the and and so that sort of sent the message to the PLO, which is still committed to Israel's destruction, that Israel is hesitant and weak and it wants out. The withdrawal from from southern Lebanon strengthened Hezbollah, right? Hezbollah said, "Oh, look, we're winning. Look, our strategy of uh, you know attacking of um, of atasha, um, got the word attrition. attrition, attrition, attrition for fifteen years. It's worked. We defeated the great IDF, and they went running overnight away from our territory back to Israel. We are winning, right? So this strengthened Hezbollah. This was that led to Nasrallah's famous." Uh, speech where he said that Israel is like a spider's web, right? It's just touched a little bit and it's all going to fall apart, right? So this, uh, right, so, so this, the, all of this together led to what eventually became the Second Intifada, 
Right? I'm saying, okay, we just need to push a little bit more. They strengthened Arafat, they strengthened Hezbollah, and they said, we need to push a little bit more, and Israel is going to fall apart. And so we need to now uh, double down on our attacks uh, on Israelis in the, what they call the Second Intifada. Right? The and same the thing, Second yeah. Lebanon War, if you want to stretch it a well, few years later. I would, I would, I would then add that the, uh, let's say, after the, the Second Intifada, that we had Khomand Magen, the Operation Protective Wall, I think. Whatever. All right, yeah. whatever. We went into the uh, Judean Samaria. They retook re- Israel. Retook control of certain areas. It d- it dismantled the terrorist infrastructure that had been built there for 15 years, and that was a serious uh, blow to uh, the PA and its terrorist uh, capabilities. But immediately after that, what did we do? Withdrawal from Aza. Right, mm-hmm. and it was with withdrawal from Aza that demoralized both their, I think, overall society and the IDF, and encouraged. Hezbollah saying, oh, look, that's what they, they left Gaza uh, uh, right now because they feel like they can't handle it and they can't uh, stick it out. Then let's uh, attack them now. Let's uh, do that. And of course, that was a miscalculation. But uh, but that's what led them to think that way. And so this this has had its own snowball effects. And until, again, around 2009, where we started turning it around, right, where Israel took the lead globally on on against the Iranian nuclear program. It put the brakes on concessions and stopped running after Abbas to try and make concessions to offer the Palestinians a sovereign state. And, uh, and, and it made it clear that it is going to uh, seek its own security and, do, and act when it needs to act. Okay, one last question. Yeah, Wait, which yeah. I just want to make yeah. that point there. And that's what, again, that's what led to, uh, there's a particular issue at the, in 2015, right, where Netanyahu goes to Washington to lecture the, the, or to speak in the U.S. Congress. Congress. And this was a big controversial, controversial uh, issue. He was, of course, invited there by Congress, but, you know, it was against what but the president was uh, trying to uh, lead, which was the uh, Iran, Iran deal, right? And, and so it, it's been said afterward by Saudi Arabia and, and, and Emirati sources that it was when they saw that Netanyahu was willing to do that, that he was willing to put his neck out in order to, to undermine the deal that they also saw as a negative deal, because it also threatened their their future, their security. That was when they realized it's worth making because it's worth taking extra steps to, in order to have normalization with Israel. He was willing to go to bat against right the biggest uh, the biggest player in the field. Right, exactly. He said if the, if Israel is willing to do that, then that's someone we want on our team. So maybe uh, sh- short answer. Do you think? Obviously, some say that Hezbollah, Hamas, Iran now they see weakness in Israel in the IDF. You know, we're under a huge campaign, like um, propaganda campaign here in Israeli media, in Israeli news outlets. It basically says um, the IDF is doomed, the Air Force is dismantling. So our enemies see it as an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's rightfully so on their part? Um well, there we need to separate between the actual state of affairs, which I don't think that the IDF is really about to fall apart or any of, or anything of the sort. Uh, but but Israel has taken certain actions to encourage Hezbollah, like the maritime deal that it signed a, a year ago, right? For 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 over a decade or for for a long time, we had a uh, a dispute with Lebanon over where exactly the maritime border lies, right? And uh, it was on under, under ongoing negotiations. Hezbollah sends a uh, a drone close to the oil rigs. And to sort of threaten that it might uh, do something. And uh, all of a sudden, the U.S. is pressuring the interim Israeli government to make concessions and give away uh, large parts of the of the oil that uh, is underneath uh, the Mediterranean there to Lebanon, which is essentially under, under Hezbollah control. Right. So that was very encouraging to Hezbollah. Right. And, and then from there. 
we've seen another of steps from Hezbollah to that Provoke. show that show that it is that our deterrence toward them has been undermined. Yeah. Including, you think, the events of the last uh, six months here in Israel? Yeah, it's, um, on, on, the, on the northern border, I mean. I mean, that what Hezbollah, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, take, it's put tents in, in, in Israeli territory and sort of established a foothold. But the real situation of the ADF doesn't matter. What matters is that the... No, it well, does matter when push ma- comes to shove. Yeah, but it, it can still lead us to another tense. miscalculation. Right. Yeah. We can undermine deterrence while we still actually do have the power to, to, to right. act. Which would would be a mistake. I would then promote that we stop making concessions to Hezbollah. Maybe we even take smaller, take decisive action against its provocations on the northern border. Right. Right. And and not worry that this might lead to war because it's quite the opposite. When Israel acts with decisive power, that de- that's what deters our enemies. And when Israel shows hesitancy and that it's afraid of having an altercation, then that's what encourages its enemies. Okay, so you have a book coming out. Let's plug it. When is it coming out? October. In English. Yes. So let's plug it. Well, it's called Cultures of Counter-Proliferation, The Making of Israeli and American Policy Toward uh, the Iranian Nuclear Program by the academic uh, press Rutledge. And uh, I have another of uh, other articles, uh, proper academic articles that I've described some of the things that we speak, spoke about here uh-huh. and uh, a number of other uh, op-eds published in uh, various English and Hebrew uh, platforms. And your social media. Um, yeah, I'm on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, I'm not a big, I'm not big into social media. I'm more mm-hmm. focused on my, my programs that I run, my lectures, writing more in-depth uh, research. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do have a presence there, but searching my name in English or Hebrew will bring you to various uh, uh, material right. that I have out Dr. there. Dr. Rafael Ben-Levy and the Ben and Levy are connected. One word. Yeah. yeah. One word. Okay. And Rafael with PH, not with F. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for thank coming. You. It was really thank you very much. interesting, fascinating. Yeah, thanks guys for having me. It was great talking to you. Thanks. Till See you in the next time. one, guys. Bye. Bye.